0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to Peoples and Things, where we explore human life with technology. I'm Lee Vinsel. Hey, everybody. You may have heard me mention the Peoples and Things podcast derives from a class I taught at Stevens Institute of Technology, where I was before Virginia Tech. And whenever I taught that class, I like to begin with what I believe to be the simplest and most helpful definition of technology, which is the things animals use to achieve their ends. And then we focus on peoples. We put the things in a social picture. Specifically, I focus on the idea of social networks. And we ask questions like, well, how does an individual come to know how to use their things in their environment to do what they want to do? So we talk about children learning from parents and teachers, maybe becoming apprentices or entering forms of advanced education. So we start with a basic picture of people and things, or maybe in this case, things and people. Well, where do you go from there? I think the next step is that you have to put this most basic picture in society. You have to think and talk about peoples, different societies and different places and different times and how material things and activities around them were a part of those cultures. And here's the thing. If we think about what have been called complex societies, that is not cultures made up of small kin based groups, but more complex cultures featuring the division of labor and trade, increasing amounts of architecture, political systems, maybe even a state. When we look at those kinds of societies, then a typical feature is social hierarchy, some social order that divides people into those on top and those at the bottom. Indeed, I don't know if this is still true, but at one point I learned that social hierarchy was a part of the very definition of a complex society. And the reality of peoples and things has, for nearly all of human history featuring settlements, been a part of such social hierarchies. These hierarchies determine, for instance, who does what kind of work with what kind of tools. For instance, in some cultures, it is untouchables, the lowest people in the pecking order who clean out latrines and toilets. Social hierarchies also determine who has access to certain material objects, such as luxuries. For example, across much of the world and throughout long stretches of history, various cultures have had what are called sumptuary laws, which literally limited which groups were allowed to attain luxuries and extravagances. They were meant to ensure that people lower in the social ladder looked the part and stayed there where they belonged. Now, when I teach students about how technologies are a part of social hierarchies, I typically focus on a few things. I focus on work, who does what with which tools. I focus on segregation, how people are spatially divided up. And I also focus on design because as we all know, many groups, whether women, people of color, the disabled, you name it, have been and still are excluded in how various objects have been designed and made. But what I really like to do when I talk through these various ways in which social hierarchies influence the relationship between peoples and things is to focus on race in the United States. I talk about the role of technologies in slavery and Jim Crow and the civil rights movement and racial inequalities today. And for a long time, there were ways to do this. There were certainly books and articles I could give students to learn about the racial dimensions of technology, but not many for instance for many years there was very little i could give students on how american black people related to transportation and to cars in my class on the history of the automobile well now we are lucky one might even say we're blessed because although much work remains to be done for sure the last few years have featured a blooming of many books on race and technology and i'm excited because we are bringing you one of my favorites Mia Bay's Traveling Black, A Story of Race and Resistance, a book that I really like and I look forward to teaching for a long time. In this conversation, I talked to Mia Bay, a professor in the Roy F. and Jeanette P. Nichols Chair in American History at the University of Pennsylvania, about the long history of how black people related to different forms of transportation that emerged in the late 19th and 20th centuries, and how the legacy of slavery and the realities of Jim Crow shaped their experience with these technologies. We also talk about the role of transportation technologies in the civil rights movement, both as sites of resistance, such as buses, and as tools of resistance, as was the case with automobiles. Our conversation ends with a discussion of what this history has to teach our moment, including the realities at the heart of the Black Lives Matter movement. Because so many instances of police brutality begin with traffic stops and the dangers of driving while black. I hope you enjoy our chat. I had a lot of fun talking with Professor Vey, and I'm very grateful to her for writing Traveling Black. Hey, get excited! Mia, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, Travelling Black's a wonderful book. Uh, like I said, I, I um, told you earlier, I, I really look forward to teaching, it especially, I think it's it's really great when you explain to people what it's about. If that's something we still do in these kind of pandemic times, <laughs> what do you say? And, and what were you trying to do with this book?
1: Well, when I first started talking about the book to people, I said it was a social history of segregated transportation. And then the sort of thing was like, you know what it was like to travel in Jim Crow cars and ride at the back of the bus. Uh Um, And that was what I was trying to get at what was actually entailed in segregated transportation, which was sort of more than seemed obvious to me from just the idea of, like, separate forms of transportation. And I was also trying to figure out how it moved from one form of transportation mm-hmm. to another, which no one had ever really explained as far as I could tell.
0: Yep. And um, how did you come to write this book? You have earlier books on kind of African-American intellectual history and Ida B. Wells and, and other things. So how did you as an individual end up turning to transport?
1: I ended up turning to transport partially because I wrote about intellectuals. Um, I wrote, about for instance, a, a biography of Ida B. Wells, um, a anti-lynching crusader and black journalist whose career in both activism and journalism first took shape after she was kicked out of a ladies' car in Tennessee in 1881. And I, w- I was, I found that, I mean, for her, that this sort of experience of sort of being told that she couldn't ride in a car set aside for women kind of dramatized this sort of complicated world of race and gender in the late 19th century South and I found that was true for other women as well Hmm. and that sort of made me curious also just about how we went from ladies cars to Jim Crow cars and um, but beyond that in looking at intellectuals one thing that became increasingly clear to me especially if you look at black intellectuals is To even understand people's ideas, you have to get it. You have to kind of deal with the complexities of their lived experience, Mm -hmm. especially when there's sort of stuff going on that is, you know, sort of actively um, sort of on their minds as they sort of formulate their thoughts.
0: Yeah, I really like this point you made uh, in the introduction and elsewhere that. You know, it's these kind of more black intellectuals, these more elite folks, black entertainers mm. who are experiencing this travel discrimination a lot more than, often than other people were, right? So it was like in the front of their mind more often.
1: Exactly, because these the black, black intellectuals are sort of... Um... Talking to a population that's both in the South and the North, and they're moving back and forth across the regions. They're traveling a lot. Um, So, and they're, you know, and they're more likely to be able to travel than people with less money or people who, let's say, are rural Southerners working on farms. So they experience
0: all of this kind of
1: first and, and more often than other people.
0: Yeah. I was wondering to just kind of like, on a, you know, in a methods way as a historian, when you first started on this project, You know, how did you start thinking about where to look? And this is something I've thought about. You know, I I teach a class on the history of the automobile and I've Mm -hmm. done some research on black transportation just for teaching purposes. Mm -hmm. And it's such a diffuse topic. I mean, you know, it's not like you can go to like three archives and you're going to have this beautiful big story. You've got to look in all these different places. So how did you start thinking about it and, you know, approach it as a research problem?
1: Um, I approached it as a research problem... I mean, it was different for depending on the technology. The trains are the subject of a lot of litigation, mm-hmm. um, and so are buses in a certain way. So court cases were a good window in. I found black newspapers tremendously helpful. Black journalists are another group that encounter these kind of problems regularly. Yeah. So they sometimes report on their own problems, and they're also pretty happy to report on others. But beyond that, I don't think this book could have ri- been written without the internet. So because uh-huh. with car with cars and th- Cars and airplanes, I did things like do Google searches on Negro and then old words for car, like jalopy or uh-huh. sliver or whatever, to find these kind of, you know, in random publications, yep. referent discussions of, uh, or I actually at some point realized Negro and chauffeur was a good combination yeah. because that's the way a lot of black men first start driving cars. So just kind of, and then and then the you know results would include everything from trade magazines you know to court cases to newspaper reports so casting the net really wide yeah for the diffuse stuff
0: i have also in my own work found especially for like before 1925 whenever copyright cuts off it's really you can get so much just in google books looking at for for these terms right it's pretty rich Mm -hmm. yeah um Travel discrimination is a really important concept, at least early on in the introduction and segregation. I mean, are, are there, did you think like there are like certain concepts that you wanted to frame up in the book that were in, important t- to you to get a hold of like across to readers? Absolutely. Um,
1: you know, I started working on the book uh, um, around the time of the Katrina hur- 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 hurricane. So I was very aware that, And then I also lived in New York City, um, which is a city, you know, in which many people have to travel hours to get to. So I was very aware of travel discrimination in the daily lives of commuters, in the lives of, you know, um, black and brown populations that don't have cars and are stuck in New Orleans following the hurricane. Um, So I did want to get to travel discrimination as an issue, but I also wanted to kind of understand why it was so central to uh, for African Americans, why so many different people off across different sort of politics um, sort of take this, you know, take up issues like the Jim Crow car as major issues.
0: Yeah. I mean, one of the things you kind of already mentioned it, one of the things I really appreciate about your book because I've been looking into this issue of race and transport for so long, as you do track across mm-hmm. all these different modes. Like, we have good books on streetcars, we have good books on right. aviation, but like, we really have been missing this more synthetic and overarching um, picture. And another thing that you point out, like, you know, a uh, time and again is that we often tend to not look early enough and right. like go back. So, You know, where where do you see travel segregation and these travel discrimination issues start to develop historically? And, you know, what do we miss if we don't look earlier in the 19th century, I guess?
1: Um, I mean, I think we don't we miss, broadly speaking, the really big issues it takes. It takes up, I mean, travel segregation, this is all. Been a debate among historians about the origins of segregation, and and, the, and I guess the thing that travel s- discrimination suggests is we need to sort of disaggregate segregation to even understand it. Travel segregation is closely timed; the beginnings of various forms of travel segregation and discrimination really are is closely linked to emancipation in both the North and the South. Those things happen at different times. It's also mm-hmm. closely linked to the things like the development of railroads and and sort of significant numbers of common carriers so it's a very it's a history that has to do with the the um both the technology and also the sort of phenomenon of um emancipation and then also urbanization because what what do we develop these common carriers for often to sort of move people from city to city yeah um, which produces new kind of anxieties about proximity, especially because it coincides with emancipation. So we have to think about all these things together. And when it comes to thinking about um, travel segregation across different modes, what I came to realize kind of late in thinking about the book and maybe could have emphasized more in the introduction is just that you know to under, to understand the history of travel, you need to understand travel as people as people actually do it, which is to say we make decisions constantly about whether we're gonna take the train or yeah. drive a car or take a plane like you don't just sort of do one, but so when we write about just one, we're not kind of understanding the choices people are
0: making mhm mm-hmm. um I think you know like abstractly. In popular history, but certainly in academic history, we know that segregation affected the railroad system and that there was the Jim Crow car. But I also mm-hmm. think like you just bring so much more richness and detail to that story than I'd ever seen before, including where where it leads off with this uh gentleman. I think it was a doctor who like had like clothes to travel on the train because like it's so filthy mm-hmm. and stuff. I mean, it was mind-blowing. So I mean, what do you think is missing about you know? What do you think it is kind of missing in the the popular history of the Jim Crow car that you wanted to draw out for readers?
1: Um, I really felt like the way in which I mean, and this is sort of we kind of know this in the abstract about separate but equal. We certainly know it about schools. It's not just. I mean, it's it's the reverse of separate but equal. Yeah. It's separate but but sort of everything inferior and in technology. Not unlike schools. Again, this kind of means that you get the old uh, worn out technology, You always get the worst seat on whatever form of transportation you're traveling on. If you're if you're traveling black, Um, you know, which in trains, there's really terrible seats on 19th century. I mean, there's like Mm -hmm. entire terrible cars. The Jim Crow car is an old wooden car you know, um, which is more likely to completely collapse in the event of a crash, mm-hmm. all of these things, which I don't think we had really come to terms with. People knew them at the time, black travel, and that's one of the reasons that, you know, why why people protested, especially the Jim Crow car so fiercely, was they were aware that it was um, just, I mean, it was miserable to travel in often, and it was dangerous, um, and it had, like, very few of the amenities that were sort of normal in railroad cars. And and I think, I mean, one of the reasons I wanted to write the book was I felt like people were kind of forgetting it. Um, people wrote about Jim Crow and the railroads often through the lens of the courts where, mm. which n- almost never took up the issue of what exactly was entailed in yeah. so called separate but equal arrangements.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, that's, that's a good point. Cause I feel like that's what it was the experience of the car that I had, you know, I'd not, seen so richly portrayed portrayed before i mean just details like not only did, did this guy have um uh you know kind of overalls or dirty overalls to, to travel this way because it was so filthy but that these that those cars were often used for like transporting livestock and chickens and stuff like that you know it's just like wild yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> i can just can you imagine my god uh yeah um so, you know, in this system, we, you know, we could talk about streetcars, we could talk about other earlier kind of modes of transport. But obviously, you know, the automobile held out a lot of promise for African-Americans. Mm-hmm. And you can mm-hmm. see you can see people being excited about it. Like W.E.B. Du Bois clearly likes mm-hmm. to drive. Right. He likes mm-hmm. his car. And you have Jack Johnson. Uh, you know, he loves his car and, and these things, even though, obviously. Uh, you know, leads to his downfall in some ways, but you know, there is also the car also came with its own problems. And you example, there examined. There's this entire racialized and racist system built around the car. So I guess one, one place I want to start. Where do we know about like the earliest automobile users and and what they experienced?
1: Well, I mean, as you probably know, the earliest automobile users are almost kind of hobbyists, right? You know, like you know cars kind of cars kind of developed before roads yeah. and early cars are really difficult to drive um but they do experience kind of exclusion early on jack johnson being a case in point he wants to you know he wants to um Started a career in car racing, and he's not, you know, he's in the automobile associate, the American Automobile Association, which controls car racing at that point, you know, or is like you can't have a license, you're not, you're, yeah, you're not allowed to. Um, um, and there's also hostility towards early black drivers because the car represents a sort of, you know, a desirable wealth object. So there's yeah. cases of early black car owners being sort of dragged out of their cars and beaten up or their cars being destroyed. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's, you know, it's a kind of controversial object for blacks to pick up from early on. And then, and it, and, and then when cars are at the point where they offer people a certain freedom, which is to say you can drive long distance in the, isn't in them, you begin to get these development of a kind of system of, hotels motels service stations in which there there are forms of segregation in the south they're mandated by law but they also occur in the north where they're sort of customary
0: Mm -hmm. and you know the the car was such a class-based object at first i mean Mm -hmm. i think it's like woodrow wilson said that automobiles are like the best argument for socialism ever because there was so much class hostility this is like in 1907 he says that or something like that yeah and Mm -hmm. uh so, I mean, and, you know, in just what we know about race and class mm-hmm. in the United States, like black people are going to tend to have less money than white mm-hmm. folks. Like, what do we know about the earliest automobile owners and, you know, like how that plays out? And Is it like used cars become very important, I imagine, for these folks or? Yeah,
1: no, they I mean, the early the earliest automobile owners among blacks are people like Jack Johnson, other kind of well to do blacks um, who are using them who are buying them and using them the same way other rich people are. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, by the time you get to World War I, when you have like the Model T, um, you have, I mean, keep in mind a lot of black folks at this time are rural. So yeah. you have black Southerners buying used Model Ts. You also have in World War One there's this shift from white chauffeurs to black chauffeurs, um, partially due to labor shortages, also due to the fact that over time it becomes sort of clear to Southern whites that a black chauffeur is actually more useful than a white chauffeur. He can be Required to chauffeur the car and do other things as well, whereas initially the white chauffeur is kind of this sort of technological expert yeah. who doesn't do do much else aside from maybe take your daughter out, which was also one of the, <laughs> that was they a problem. Known for <laughs> whereas the black chauffeur was could be sort of incorporated into the household service. Yeah, um, so you have you have. Around World War One, you have things like sharecroppers. When there's a good cotton year, and there were a couple buying used Model Ts, you have black men working as chauffeurs and developing the kind of um, technological expertise in the automotive in, industri- industry. Well, industry while in, in taking care of automobiles, it allows all these kind of used cars to stay on the road. Yeah, um, and and that's and then you have forms from there on. You have forms of black car ownership that may not be obvious to us today families sometimes family you know entire extended families share a car people own these used cars that are not always working um you know right (laughs) but and but there's a lot of you know people who will who can kind of get it to work for a limited amount of time so people kind of revolve in and out of functional car ownership Uh
0: uh-huh yeah um you, earlier, you mentioned how we, you know, you, we start to see the development of these hotels and restaurants and mm-hmm. these segregated spaces. And obviously, one, you know, kind of famously now, the now there's been a lot of attention paid to the Green Book. There was a film made about it and, and such. And we have these travel guides, um, uh, you know, that develop that help people kind of, you know, navigate where 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 to get to these places. But what what do you think that a popular version of the Green Book story misses about these travel guides and the longer history of these things?
1: Um a couple of things. I mean, um I was sort of the sort of
0: the movie The Green Book
1: came out while I was writing, as did sort of a flurry of articles about the yeah. Green Book. And I, I kind of felt like it misses out on the story um, in a couple of different ways. One is, of course, that the Green Book is by no means the only travel guide. It's the only one that's known, but it was, you know, there, it comes out of a long, uh, you know, there's, it's not the first. Um, it, um, there's a there's a history of these travel guides that goes back to just before the Depression um, and, um, and, 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 Even before then, there are these kind of more informal guides that are being circulated among black musicians. Uh Um, Right. And the Green Book actually has ties to that. Um, Ernest Green, who develops the Green Book, is um, either, I can't remember, he or his brother-in-law is, you know, is an agent for some black musicians. (laughs) So it's literally built off existing lists and very much in this sort of infrastructure of like lack vernacular knowledge. But then the other thing is sometimes when people are writing about the Green Book and also in the movie, there is this kind of idea that the Green Book is the book that actually solves the problem of where to stay. Um, you know, like once you have the Green Book, you're good, which um, I don't think anyone thought at the time. The yeah. Green Book, for one, this is before the internet. The Green Book was often out of date. The mm-hmm. businesses that it um, listed were – often somewhat ephemeral. They were underfunded black businesses. Um, and as one user complained around 1940, like the Green Book didn't really, he, he was sort of saying that doesn't really tell you which one is almost a whore, which were the hotels is, almost a whorehouse you know
0: like <laughs> yeah, right <laughs>
1: yeah, so, like yes. you got a choice of three and you don't know which one yeah is yeah the, <laughs> <laughs> <is> the brothel
0: <laughs> right right and clearly i mean it's it doesn't solve a lot of other problems because there's still you're going to face discrimination and violence and all these other things um yeah and
1: you're also going to face and this is um this came out in the 1964 civil rights act hearings, you're also going to face just having to drive a tremendously long time between these establishments um, to the extent that it was actually kind of dangerous. It was like a longer time than recommended by the highway safety guidelines.
0: Right. right. Um, So you know, the, this period that you that the early part of the book looks at the late 19th and early 20th centuries um, obviously featured like the creation of all these new transport forms. And mm-hmm. as we talked about, um, you know, one of the things you're tra- tracing is how segregation is kind of moving between n- new technologies. So how did how did Jim Crow segregation and, and these forms of discrimination come to be applied to air travel when it starts to emerge?
1: Yeah, that was fascinating. That was actually the first chapter I wrote because I had no idea whether it would be a chapter or like ten pages. Uh Because you know, I know that feeling whether the sources are there. (laughs) Um, But um, I mean, in some ways, it was like the other technology. There was always this kind of phase where the new technology emerges and it's supposed to be for elite, technologically advanced white people, and this was. True Mm -hmm. with early air travel, even to the point where air travel kind of originates as individuals flying planes and um, blacks are discouraged from participating in this. There is, you know, people like Lindbergh, you know, say this is the sort of talent of the master race, Mm -hmm. the greatest accomplishment of the white race and so forth. And then it seems to segue pretty, I mean, there's not enormous numbers of early blacks. Flyers, but from early on initially there's kind of an, an absolute exclusion. People are simply refused entrance to planes. Then, at a certain point, everyone has to it becomes clear that planes are indeed common carriers, which is to say if you if you sell a ticket to something like an airplane or a bus, you have to carry everyone that's sort of old English law that we have here um, and then they start to find ways to seat the usually individual or single black passenger on early planes, which are relatively small, you know, by him or herself, usually himself. And and then, it, it, then we get to this, again, familiar story of what is, in fact, the worst seat on a plane. And uh, it took me a while to figure out why the front seat, which was, for a while, the worst seat on the plane, was the worst seat on the plane, but it of course has to do with propeller planes mm. and how noisy and and filled with sparks. Mm -hmm. uh, That was, um, and then when that is no longer the worst seat, um, the seat becomes, it becomes more like isolating the passenger in a row by him or by him or herself. It's never official segregation on planes and it may not even be that extensive. It's a little hard to tell, but it's extensive enough to, I mean, you know that I did find many references to it. And actually oddly enough, my mother actually experienced it uh when she <laughs> I once asked her well before I started this book I was like um you know what was your experience of flying? Mostly cuz she was a very nervous person and I thought she say she had been very very scared and yeah. she was like she was like it was in the 50s and uh she was seated next to the only other black person on the mm-hmm. on the plane. That's what, and she thought it was an incredible coincidence. That's what she
0: remembered. An incredible coincidence.
1: And it was not a coincidence, as <laughs> yeah. my book tells you. This is, it's actually the way they would seat black people if yeah. it was more than one of them on a plane.
0: And the other thing you cover is just that you know, and this is something that obviously goes across multiple transport uh modes too it's just the construction and reconstruction of space to create mm-hmm. a, in the in the airports right you end mm-hmm. up with the same kind of waiting rooms and seating and these kinds of things right
1: yeah no there's a i mean there's a, there's a there's a, a you know a, a deep commitment and a legal commitment in the south during the years that airports are being constructed into constructing segregated space so they find ways to do it even though airports are all constructed with federal grants that actually have you know are, are supposed to not actually support segregation they find sort of legal loopholes ways around it but it's um so airports are being built with with various degrees of segregation usually restrooms almost and un an, almost invariably restaurants well into the beginning of the sixties when the justice department finally yeah puts an end to it.
0: You know, the civil rights movement, I, I, I had, uh, another guest I had on recently just interviewed this week <laughs> is the African American historian, Joe Trotter about his work, mm-hmm. recent book workers on arrival. It's this kind of big history of African American labor going all the way back to the beginning and coming up to the present And, you know, I've been thinking a lot about the civil rights movement. It really encompassed so many things. Like with Joe, I Mm -hmm. talked about the labor side. You can talk about lunch counters and restaurants. Mm -hmm. But I feel like the transportation aspects of the um, civil rights movement, whether it's Montgomery or the Freedom Mm -hmm. Riders, it's just so iconic as a part Mm -hmm. of the movement. Why do you Mm -hmm. think it, I mean, why was it such a, you know, why did it play such a big role in the movement? And why do you think it strategically Uh, the civil rights leaders were focusing on Hmm,
1: it. That's a good... Well, I mean, I'm not... I'm not sure it was strategically what the civil rights movement leaders planned to focus on. I mean, Montgomery... A lot of transportation projects, protests actually start, you know, out of what's going on on the ground. Certainly in Montgomery, um, you know, it's... um, a lot of women with a i mean there's sort of a long history of hostility between bus drivers and um blacks in Montgomery mm-hmm. by the time you get to the bus boycott black men are barely even riding the buses if they can avoid it cuz the you know cause the kind of disdain that they're treated with sometimes leads to fights yeah um and you have you know women kind of planning to to start a boycott well before it happens and then only when it when they do start it is you know do we have leaders like Martin Luther King being called in and the NAACP has sort of is it has you know it var- it, during the Depression when the NAACP has to kind of choose its cause it it chooses education over transportation mm. for for good reasons it also emphasizes anti lynching over transportation but transportation keeps coming up because it's so much part of people's daily life. Yeah. Um, and also because um, it, you know, poses these kind of moments that, um, you know, in which people are in real crisis. So you just keep having court cases that are not necessarily always organized by anyone who's planning to make this as a major, major right. deal,
0: <laughs> Yeah. right? Yeah.
1: So it, it, it's – I think it just it, – it has – it's a national problem. Yeah. It's um it's something that people often confront as individuals but in ways that sort of lead them to lead them to pursue a court case or in the case of things like um local buses do a bus boycott. Yeah. Um you know, I think it just um and there's I guess it's also like with schools. I mean, Yes, school segregation was horrible, but there were ways in which people were attached sometimes to their segregated schools, trying to make them work, not entirely averse to the idea of just getting equalization funding or improvements. But the transportation segregation just didn't work because the rules were different from state to state, from region to region. Mm -hmm. You could end up in trouble with segregated transportation Without ever having you know having planned to cause any kind of protest
0: mm-hmm. one of the things that really has interested me for a while and um I, I did some research on it with a grad student using black newspapers is the um role of automobiles and um uh, what's the word I'm looking for here um carpools in the civil rights movement, mm-hmm. especially in Especially in Montgomery, I mean, in King's memoirs, the carpool plays a big role in kind of mm-hmm. making it possible. So, what? How do you? Yeah, like, how do you think the kind of yeah the car played a role in just like the relationship between these different modes of transport for the civil rights movement leaders? The car, yeah. you
1: know, the car for all that people experienced a lot of forms of discrimination driving, forms of discrimination that sort of led them to you know. Um, be wary of service stations. To sometimes travel at night, to go certain routes, the car, on the other hand, also did offer certain kinds of freedoms. And one was an alternative to public transportation. I mean, as I said in Montgomery, a lot of black men had already stopped riding yeah. the buses. If there was a one-car family, maybe the maybe the man would be riding the bus, uh, riding the driving to work. Um, and it made, you know, it made the boycott possible, though not without difficulty, because as you probably know from King's thing, you know, the the, um, insurance became an issue for the boycott carpool. There were all sorts of attempts made to kind of shut that down. Um, But there was still some possibility of autonomy and even insurance could be secured elsewhere. And there were ways to get gas if local gas stations weren't supplying
0: it. Yeah. No, it's a fascinating story, I think. I mean and in, yeah there were like multiple waves. I think if I remember correctly there was um they first wanted to use taxis, black owned mm-hmm. taxis to basically circumvent the bus system and the city cracked down on that in a big way. Yeah. So it's just like multiple ways. You see the 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 kind of activists trying t- these different strategies and then the city would try to close that down. So it's it's a really fascinating story. So a, a number of court decisions and eventually uh legislation made you know, desegregation desegre- des- of, of transport illegal, but what did the process of desegregating transportation look like on the ground? Cause I mean, you can have court decisions and stuff like that. Right. But like, right. It takes a while. It's a process. It's not like it's going to happen overnight. So what did well, it, well, and
1: then also, I mean the, you know, the court decisions that desegregate really start coming as early as the forties and, and um, they're just sort of, Southern courts, um, Southern businesses find ways around them. Um, you Mm -hmm. know, like, so, uh, um, the carrier, when, 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 in, in Morgan, in the Morgan case in Virginia, it's ruled that Virginia cannot segregate its buses. The carriers begin to Mm -hmm. segregate buses and trains. Um, and. Even after 1961, when, um, desegre when the federal government finally kind of cracks down and says this is going to be enforced, um, you know, people still have to kind of get it through their heads that they can actually ride in whatever part of the car that they want. But I, I think I think the challenge is that I mean one of the things that white Southerners hope that is with with or without the law, people would just continue to observe segregation yeah. rules. And that that did not happen precisely because um the accommodations for blacks were so inferior, people didn't continue to simply observe segregation. And then you also get um, things like the Freedom Rides of 1961, um, and 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 the cases that precede that, like the, the Boynton case, where you just have a you know a, a college student who decides he's going to eat at the white bus station counter. So yeah. it, it I think it, it takes, but I mean what I take from the whole story is that it takes more than court cases. It does take direct action protests um, often by people who are actually simply trying to claim the legal rights that they already have, according to the courts.
0: Yeah, totally. So the subtitle of your epilogue is hashtag black travel matters. And mm-hmm. uh, clearly transportation plays a huge role in the black lives matter movement. If we think for a second about how deadly encounters with police so often start for, black people so after Mm -hmm. after doing the work of writing this book you know what do you want to tell people today and what do we learn from the history of race and transportation that maybe we fail to understand or recognize
1: um i think i i guess one thing i learned was that um You know, there's a way in which infrastructure can be invisible to us, especially to those of us who are not really having problems with it. You know, Um, so, like, if you have a car, you may not be aware that the public transportation in your neighborhood is abysmal and (laughs) you can't get from one place to another. Um, And um, so... I mean, I think it tells me that we need to pay more attention to that and and how those decisions are made, which are it's usually kind of, I mean, usually made in, in, in all sorts of ways that actually don't take into account the sort of needs of a broad spectrum of people, yeah. broad spectrum of people. Um, and, um, you know, I've long thought that transportation inequity, um, and it's sort of ma- muddied by the whole pandemic work from home things yeah, to some yeah. extent, but... I've long thought that transportation inequity was sort of, especially given the way the housing market operates, sort of the sort of new, was heading to new heights, you know, just because, especially in the Northeast, you have people ending up living, you know, two, three hours away from where they live by public transportation. Is that a sustainable way of living? Is that a sustainable way of organizing people?
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: And you know, and now with climate change, that's even a bigger question. We have to think about how we just have to think yeah. actually more about how people get from um one place to another whether it's fair and equitable and whether it's destroying our planet.
0: Yeah, totally. No, I I really like the you know some of your reflections in um Uh, in the epilogue about kind of the devil's bargain around cars uh, for black people, for not only for the, you know, driving while black type issues, but just what it means for cities and Mm -hmm. the environment and all these things. It's, it's such a huge question that we're stuck with.
1: Yeah. Yeah, And and one that seems like it grows more pressing all the time. and, And it seems like as we try to address either one of those issues, either be it the environmental toll of cars or transportation in inequality. We actually need to try to think about solutions that address both of them at the same time.
0: Yeah. And another part I loved about your epilogue, this was actually something I was thinking about doing sometime is going down and actually like riding uh, buses in Montgomery and, and checking them <laughs> out. Right. And I was I love the fact that you wrote about like, what is the bus system in Montgomery look like today? Mm-hmm. And, you know, you say, um, you know, it's far from something Rosa Parks would idealize. Right. Even though it's been right. desegregated in, in quotation marks. Uh, mm-hmm. It's pretty far from ideal.
1: No, it's pretty far from ideal. And today, you know, the Rosa, Rosa Parks equivalent of today, someone with a white collar job probably isn't taking the bus. The buses don't run often yep. enough for anyone who has any choice yeah. uh, to take them regularly.
0: Yeah. And I guess some place I've ended up thinking a lot the last couple of years about this is the civil rights movement is this moment, right? It's this famous mm. moment. It comes together for particular reasons. It falls apart in particular ways and in, in particular time. And we have the legacy of those things, mm. you know, or, but whether we look at education or transport or voting rights or all these things, they're not battles that can be won at one time, to- one point in time and then it's over, right? Right. Um, And so, I mean, I also felt like your book is in in parts like calling in the end to that we need more forms of activism around these transportation issues.
1: Yeah, I think we do. And we need, I mean, you know, it's difficult to say because then the fight to actually desegregate, you know, these uh, buses, trains and so forth was so long and so hard fought. Yeah. It seems. Hard to ask for more forms of activism, yeah. but the fact is that, um, um, you know, activism is is this kind of long game that that people have to kind of continually um, be involved in. And here I would go back to Ida B. Wells, who, in her autobiography, she described herself, drawing on a biblical mem- metaphor, as she often did, as as a sort of Watcher on the walls of the gates of Jerusalem, Uh always on the lookout for injustice. And I mean, I I do think that we, you know, like, just sort of trying to create the task of trying to create a better society. It's never like it's over. And we go through cycles of backlash, in particular, in in this country. Mm.
0: We're in one of those right now, unfortunately, aren't we? (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. So what's next for you? I mean, do you have a, a next project you're working on? or Are you taking a break?
1: No, I mean circle back to the project I was working on actually before I started this book after before travel traveling black kind of hijacked my uh-huh. research agenda. <laughs> and that was that was that is a book about African American ideas about Thomas Jefferson.
0: Oh, cool. I love that. I mean, I I haven't read your your I think it was your first book maybe, but you were you mm-hmm. wrote about African Americans thinking about white folks, right? Was your yeah. early work? Yeah. Yeah. And now you're thinking about like Jefferson as an example and kind of
1: Jefferson in particular because yeah. one of the things I found in the research for my first book is that he is actually much discussed in 19th mm. century black newspapers as a, you know a kind of as both the best and the worst of American democratic Yeah thoughts. so um so I you know I want to return to that and kind of look at the way he emerges as as a central figure in black thought during the 19th
0: century and sort of what people do with that. That's cool. That sounds wonderful. And I mean, are you going to bring it up? I mean, you know, obviously, um, with, um, I'm sorry, I'm thinking I'm forgetting Jefferson, the woman Jefferson was in a relationship with, but Sally Hemings. yeah, Yeah. Right. I mean, there's been a lot of, um, A lot of rethinking his legacy and recently will you will you come up and examine that or do you want to really focus on that earlier period no
1: i think i will examine examine that um in one way or another sort of challenging to figure out exactly how to do that but it seems like there's it's um you know it's it's overdue and um
0: yeah yeah well mia this has been great thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today
1: all right all right well thank you i enjoyed it
0: you enjoyed this episode of our podcast. You can reach us with questions, comments, and suggestions at LeeVinsel at gmail.com or by following me on Twitter at STS underscore news or on YouTube at People's Things. Our podcast is distributed by the New Books Network, the leading platform for academic podcasts so that you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Peoples and Things, like most things in this world, depends on the work of many people. I wanna thank my brother, Jake Vinsel, for writing the music for the show. I wanna thank my buddy, Juliana Castro, for designing the logos for the podcast. You can check out her work at julianacastro.co. Joe Ford is the producer for the podcast, and Mandy Lamb is the production assistant. This podcast and other Peoples and Things programming are produced in affiliation with Virginia Tech Publishing and supported by the Center for Humanities and the University Libraries at Virginia Tech. For information about other podcasts from Virginia Tech Publishing, visit publishing.vt.edu. For the entire Peoples and Things team, I am Lee Vinsel, and most importantly, I want to thank you for listening. Thanks.